Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Morning. Welcome to church. Chris, congratulations. I'm super, super happy she said yes. Could have been. Could have been a different sort of morning. <laughs> um, Esperanza, congratulations as well. Well, um, today we are going to be in uh, the book of Philippians. We are just taking a quick break from Acts, sort of to reflect on, I think, the sorts of ideas we've been thinking a lot about over the last few days, over this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, so open your Bibles with me to Philippians 4, verse 10, and we'll read together. <clears throat> I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen? All right. Well, we've just had a long weekend, a Thanksgiving weekend. Who here likes Thanksgiving? Everyone, right? It's a great holiday. It's a fantastic holiday. I like Thanksgiving a lot. I like Thanksgiving food okay. I just, in general, like the holiday for some reason. It's always weird, too. Have you ever explained Thanksgiving to someone who's not from America? Like, hey, it's a holiday. It's centered around food. And they're like, that sounds correct. An American holiday centered around food. Yes, that makes sense to me. Thanksgiving is a great opportunity for us to gather together with family and eat good food and all sorts of stuff like that. But there's this like ritual that we do on Thanksgiving that many of us do. You probably did it. It's where everyone uh, sits around the table and says something that they're thankful for. You guys, did, who did that this, this Thanksgiving? Okay, a smaller percentage of you than, than celebrated Thanksgiving. Okay, so uh, it's great, right? Except for if you're last at the table, someone's like, the first person's like, oh, I'm thankful for family. And you're like, oh, okay, he took that one. I'm thankful for shelter. By the time it gets around to you, you're like, I'm thankful for Netflix. <laughs> it's great. I'm pretty excited about it. All the noble answers were gone. I like Thanksgiving, but I think Thanksgiving weekend is particularly jarring because although we have rituals that we um, celebrate, that we engage in on Thanksgiving to express the thankfulness of our hearts, we have another ritual that we are really, really committed to on the same weekend. We can see a picture of it here, hopefully. Yes. What's this? Black Friday. I did Black Friday one time. Got up real early. Drove to Target. Got there at like 2 a.m., waited in line. I wanted a laptop. By the time I got in, the laptop was already all sold out. I found a guy who literally had that laptop in his cart, and I paid him $50 for the unbought laptop that I then had to go and buy. That's how good of a deal it was. Bought my laptop, went home. Two months later, got stolen out of my car. The reason I think Black Friday is so jarring is one moment we are thanking presumably God for all the things that are in our life, and then the next day we are like in a riot in order to like get more stuff. I get emails all day long about Black Friday. Who gets these emails? 
You get notifications on your phone. How many of you are getting notifications from Groupon and Amazon and all these places about, oh, we have Black Friday deals? Who's that? Who's, who's doing that, right? It's invading every single area of our life. And the question I want to ask, the one I want to talk about and think about today as we, we think about Paul is, which of these two rituals is closer to our heart? Saying Thanksgiving for things or consumption, the desire to get more? I think as as Americans today, it is easy to see how pervaded our world is by the idea of having more things. We struggle with the idea of contentment. If Thanksgiving is the outward sort of proclamation or declaration of being happy about something, contentment is a little bit different. It is the inner position or disposition or state of being at peace regardless of your circumstances. And Paul says he has the secret to being content. In 12 and 13, we can read this. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Acts for how long? Like five years now? Long time? We said it's going to take a year, and we're like two-thirds of the way, a year in. We'll get there. We'll get there. The second half of Acts is primarily about Paul and his, his three missionary journeys, and now we're kind of in the final third of Acts. And one of the things that happens is as Paul goes out to new cities that had never heard the gospel before, he preaches the gospel there. People's hearts turn to Jesus, and when he leaves, there's new little churches that he founds along the way. And when we read Paul's letters, we get to read about his interaction with some of these new churches. Um, sometimes he stayed with them for a while, like in Corinth or Ephesus, and sometimes only for a few weeks, like in Philippi. And if you keep reading Acts, eventually Paul, after he travels around the Mediterranean and preaches the gospel and starts these churches, he goes back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's arrested there. And he's taken to Caesarea, a nearby city, where he's imprisoned for two years. And different leader or powerful official comes in and out of his life. And eventually Paul is carted off to Rome where he's put under house arrest. And this is where the book of Acts ends. But the vast majority of New Testament scholars think that this is the end of Paul's life. That he awaits trial in Rome. He's eventually tried, found guilty, and executed. Not everyone believes that. Acts doesn't tell us what happens. But most people think that. So as Paul is in house arrest at Rome in the final years or days of his life, he begins to write letters to some of the churches that he used to visit. Philippians is one of those letters. He is writing a letter while in chains to a church that's thousands of miles away. And he talks to them about unity, about enduring suffering, about the power of the gospel, about what it is that Jesus achieved at the cross. He also talks to them about the way he relates to them. This is sort of how he opens his letter. In 1-3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then we can jump forward to seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's important to understand this. As Paul provides perhaps his best description or answer for what it means or how you can be content, he is in chains. He's in prison. 
He is away from the vast majority of people that care about him. He is awaiting trial and by all accounts likely awaiting his own death. And what's happened is the church at Philippi has sent Paul a gift while he's in Rome. Probably some money so that he could buy food because Roman prisoners were often required to get their own food. And the letter to the Philippians, although Paul does all kinds of other stuff along the way, is ultimately used to thank the church at Philippi for this gift. And that's what he does in verses 10 through 13. A very famous passage about being able to do all things in Christ is situated in Paul thanking the Philippians for their gift. And when he does this, he has to be careful because in the first century, in the day that Paul was alive, giving of gifts was complex. It required a lot of social sort of understanding. You gave gifts to people who deserve them in order to get things in return. And Paul is careful to undermine this view of gift giving. Instead of a two-way interaction, it's a three-way interaction in which God is involved in the giving of gifts, in the return of gifts, and in the fruit that those gifts will bear. When we think about contentment, when we think about what it means to be content, being at peace with what we have, we often think about what it means to not be content first. We think about striving to achieve things, wanting to have things that are good, aligning our life so that we can get the thing that we want the most, whether it's money or it's power or it's a particular romantic partner, whatever it is, we understand what it means to align things up. But here's the thing, it is not just the accrual of getting things, like actually attaining things where contentment comes into play. I think it's also in keeping things. There's a famous poet named Wallace Stevens that says whenever he's contented, whenever he is what he wants, whenever he's satisfied, he's always searching for imperishable bliss. He means even when I'm happy, even when I'm in that moment of satisfaction where the desire I have or the hunger I have is being satiated, I still think it's going to end one day. Let me give you an example. Who here likes Disneyland? Anybody? A small percentage of you. Okay. Who here's been to Disneyland? Okay. As a kid, Disneyland's great, right? As an adult, Disneyland's still great. <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved going to Disneyland with my parents. They would surprise us in the morning. We'd go out. We'd be super excited. Just Our brains were about to explode with joy. It was totally unadulterated also. Like, we like Disneyland. We didn't know how much Disneyland costs. We weren't thinking about sunscreen or how the lines were not worth the eight-second rides, right? We, we weren't thinking about how criminally overpriced the food was. It was a good day. We were happy about it. Our hunger for a particular type of joy was being satisfied. Here's the problem, though. As a kid, I had this preoccupation with how many hours of Disneyland we had left. <laughs> so, like, we'd get there, and it'd be great. I'd be having fun, running around, doing different lines. we get to lunch, right? It's noon. And I think, Disneyland is going great. I'm loving Disneyland. Twelve hours of Disneyland left, Right? which is kind of weird to be concerned about that. 4 p.m., late afternoon, I'd be like, man, we had a full day of Disneyland already. It's been great. It's been fantastic. Eight hours left. And we get to like 7 p.m., we'd have dinner. I'd be like, man, it's been a great day. I'm not even tired yet. Disneyland's great. We have five hours left. And I like count down, four, three, two, one. What was happening was the imminent arrival of the end of Disneyland was robbing me of my present joy. I knew it was going to end, that I could not keep it. The doors were going to close. We were going to be kicked out. And so the rides weren't as fun. I knew it was going to end. What I wanted was imperishable bliss, a joy that would not 
go away. Contentment is a struggle in want and in plenty. When you're being satisfied and when you're unsatisfied. Paul talks about contentment here. What it means to be satisfied. And I want to just discuss three things as we go through this passage. The enemy of contentment. The source of contentment. And the result of contentment. I've defined contentment as being at peace regardless of your circumstances. Discontentment is just not being at peace, wanting something else, wanting something more. I think so much so that you cannot imagine your life without that thing. And we know that we can be content whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. Anyone in here today, this morning, who has a lot knows that those things do not give them contentment for one reason or another. Whether you're hungry or whether you're well-fed, contentment is still an elusive, difficult thing to find, to achieve. Our entire society, really today, consumerism, I think the predominant philosophy of the modern age, it tells us, get this thing and you will be happy. We see it on billboards and in commercials. Everywhere we drive, we're driving around things telling us, buy this thing, you'll be happy. It's a computer or, or a house or a car or whatever, right? No ads ever say this. Buy this and you'll be like almost happy. You'll want just a little bit more. <laughs> they all tell you you will be satisfied if you have this thing. This is the idea of finding contentment in things or in stuff. I think most of us intuitively know that this is not the sort of thing that will offer lasting satisfaction, I think also most of us have experienced the strong desire to be satisfied with things. When I say things, I don't just mean like physical objects. It could be a position at a workplace. It could be a certain amount of power. It could be a level of respect. Some sort of external thing that you think will make you happy. Most of us are thinking of something specific right now. That's always been a problem. We can go way back to the first century. There's this guy named Plutarch, and he's writing about Um, just the way people lived back then. He says, the owner of five couches goes looking for 10, and the owner of 10 tables buys up as many again. And though he has lands and money in plenty, is not satisfied, but bent on more, losing sleep, and never sated with any amount. Now, I'm sure most of us are thinking, 10 tables? That's a really weird thing to want to have. I have room for one table. Not often thinking about how many tables I have. We think about other things, though, right? You buy one Apple product, you want five of them. I don't think most people who have had some of their belongings for a year don't start to think about a better version of the thing that they already have. I think this is most apparent, like most tangible, uh, when you are about to buy something, and I I call this like the 10% principle. You have a thing you want to buy, a house or a car or a computer, and you think, if I just had 10% more money to work with, I could get everything I needed. I really want this house in this neighborhood, but it's just like, 10% out of what I can afford. If I just had a little bit more money, I could buy the car that had the luxury sort of features that I want. If I had 10% more money, I could buy the computer that has enough storage for all of my photos. I think that would be true no matter how much money you had to work with. In any position, I think most of us have experienced this, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and I would be totally satisfied. (laughs) It's simply not true. 
It's not true. It's easy to be fooled by that. I have personally been fooled by that, but it's not true. Nor is this struggle or this idea of attaining objects and becoming satisfied, becoming content, just a secular idea. It's also one that is preached by many so-called preachers throughout America and other parts of the world. I'm going to show you one specifically. His name is Kenneth Copeland. You may have heard of him. He says this, There are certain rules governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. They will work when they are put to work, and they will stop working when the force of faith is stopped. He's saying, if you have faith in the right way, you will get things. You will get stuff. You will get positioning, and those things will satisfy you. He says, have faith in a certain way, and you can have a house like mine, or the amount of money that I have, or the private jet that I have, or so on and so forth. Here's the thing. Same problem. Things will satisfy you. Just sort of Christian flavored. This is a lie. It's not true. What he's saying here is not true. It's a lie. Paul is in chains. He's in chains. He's awaiting trial, probably awaiting death. Was it because Paul was not faithful? No, it wasn't. But Paul had learned the secret of being content. I want us to see that the desire to have more stuff is so incredibly powerful. As I prayed over and reflected on this passage and thought about my own heart and my own life, I began to pray that God would show me areas where I think a thing, a level of power or a level of money or whatever, would satisfy me. And it's amazing the stuff I could find. It is so easy to think that something outside of yourself will satisfy you, some sort of worldly possession or position. It's a lie and it's not true. So although we may seek to find contentment in stuff and things and in, 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 uh, possessions, we can also seek to find contentment in ourselves. This is another way that I think we try and find contentment in the wrong place. Not in stuff, but in self. And the way this is done is usually not through the accrual of objects, but their dismissal altogether. To say that things and position and power and respect and all these things, they don't matter to us. We withdraw inside ourselves, we harden our hearts, and we clench our fists, and we grind our teeth, and say, we're strong people, we're not going to let the world affect us. This is a premise um, of a famous philosophy in Paul's day called Stoicism. And many of you have probably heard of Stoicism. We say someone has a Stoic face today if they seem unaffected by the world around them. Paul even uses a word in this passage that's very rare in the New Testament and biblical literature, but very common in Stoic literature. It's the word autocrase, and it refers to sort of a self-made human being, a self-made person. I want to give you an example of Stoicism from the first century. Here's Seneca. The happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Stoicism says, do not be bothered by your circumstances. You cannot control them. Instead, just muscle through. You can only control the response of your heart. Be happy with what you have, and don't allow the world around you to affect you. And here's, it's so appealing because this is so close to the truth. It's close to the truth, but it's not the truth. I want to show you more examples of Stoicism. Here's one from about 100 years ago. 
the poet uh, uh, William Henley wrote Invictus. And you've heard this poem, or at least the last line. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I think most people hear this poem, and part of it speaks powerfully to them. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm not going to let the world affect me. I'm not going to be burdened by people's expectations or feelings. I'm going to find true satisfaction and true contentment by descending into myself and not worrying about the world around me. This is still a real common view. Here's another modern-day poet that's a Stoic. I stay out too late. Got nothing in my brain. That's what people say. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what people say. I go on too many dates, but I can't make them stay. At least that's what people say. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what people say. But I keep cruising. (laughs) Can't stop, won't stop moving. It's like I got this music in my mind saying, it's going to be all right. Because the player's going to play, 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 play. And the hater's going to hate, 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 hate. Baby, I'm just going to shake, 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 shake. I shake it off. Shake it off. You guys know this song, right? This famous modern stoic Taylor Swift. The reason I showed you that song is not to get it stuck in all of your heads for the rest of the day. The reason I showed it to you is I want you to see that this virtue of Stoicism is alive and well in modern culture, and we can barely recognize it. Paul uses a word that the Stoics use on purpose. He says, no, 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 you should neither be insatiably hungry for possessions and positions, nor should you be in an eternal emotional and psychological fast. Neither of those things are acceptable. All that happens when we bow down to the idea of stoicism, is we relocate satisfaction from things to ourselves. Both of these positions, both of these views of satisfaction will not actually satisfy you. They won't. As failing and as false as possessions and position and things are to provide satisfaction for us, so are our own hearts. One of the problems with Stoicism, it says, you can just be strong. You can muscle through. You'll be fine. You're great. You're the captain of your soul. Shake it off. That will not last you. It won't last me. I know my own heart. I know it won't last me. Paul says, neither will be sufficient. He is not a Stoic. We see him cry tears throughout his letters. We see him shout with joy throughout his letters. We see how hard he works and how much he cares about the churches. He's not hardened himself off to the people around him. He's got an open heart. He cares for people. The world does affect him. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. It's because he has placed or he's located contentment 
not in something that is dependent on him, his situation, or his circumstances. None of those things. He is content in something else. He does recognize that there is a hunger that must be satiated. But it cannot be filled with objects. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think it gets us close to that. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Very simply, the source of contentment is Jesus. Independent of the external world, more certain than our own hearts. Let me read verses 12 and 13 again. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We are now at perhaps the most misquoted passage in the New Testament. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not about like basketball or skateboarding really well. (laughs) It's not about our own personal achievements. The phrase all things is confined by what Paul has just said. He said, I know how to be content when I'm hungry and when I'm well fed. When I'm raised high or when I'm abased when I have things provided for me, and when I have to go without. The all things is a reference to the fact that whatever God calls you to do, he resources you for. He ensures, Jesus that is, that you can be content in any situation. Not that you can like slam dunk a basketball. It's not what it's about. And what Paul does here is something that the Bible often does. It grounds a behavior in the very character and person of God himself. Let's go back to the Old Testament. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are led out of Egypt through miracles. God is constantly, miraculously delivering them in a variety of ways. They get to Mount Sinai, and God provides for them the Ten Commandments. And the First Commandment and the Tenth Commandment, they act like bookends for all of them. If you follow these two, the rest are going to fall in line. The First Commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. And the tenth is this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. The tenth commandment is just a way of living out the truth of the first commandment. The commandments begin this way. Just worship the one God. And Exodus is filled with declarations of who that God is. I'm the one who brought you out from under the hand of the Egyptians. I'm the one who parted the Red Sea. I'm the one who was with you in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. I'm the one who gave you food and water in the desert. That same God is the God whom you are to worship. So how could you ever think that what you have is not enough? Coveting is sort of the opposite of contentment. It looks at what someone else has, and it says, I should have that thing. And when we do that, we are tacitly, we're quietly um, disagreeing with the first commandment, that there's the one God whom we should worship. 
Paul does something similar when he gets to this section in Philippians. He's grounding contentment, the exercising of contentment in the very person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I know the highs and lows of life, and I know how to be content. I know what it means to be hungry or well-fed and still be content. I know how to be content when I'm well-respected by those around me or when I'm humiliated and abased and no one takes me seriously. I know how to be content when I'm with those that love me and care about me, and I know how to be content when I'm separated from everyone I care about by miles and chains. I know how to be content when I have wins, and I know how to be content when my efforts fall to the floor. How is that possible? It's not just gritting through. It's because his contentment is found in something independent from anything else, in Jesus himself. I don't mean to give you an answer that's so simple it seems obvious. Um, I just don't think many of us have really internalized this. Where is your satisfaction? Where is your joy? Where is your contentment? Where is your hope? Where is your peace? We cannot find it in any other place whatsoever. Only in Jesus. Amen? I want us to notice um, something, though. Paul doesn't just say that he's content because of Jesus. He says that he's content in Jesus. The text says, in him who strengthens me. It is not just the case that Jesus provides satisfaction for us. He is himself our satisfaction. He is not a hallway or a path to our home. He is our home. When we think about the contentment we can have in Jesus, we don't think about the things he gives us. We don't just think about the gift, we think about the giver. We don't just think about the provision, we think about the provider. Paul is content because he is in Jesus. And nothing, nothing can take that away from him. It is eternal and it is certain. That's why he can say things like this that he says in 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or perhaps better, As Paul reckons with the fact that he is continually struggling with a thorn in his side, he says this, But he said to me, that is Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. If contentment is sought out in anything else, in any position, in any amount of power, in any amount of money, in any amount of relational cash, it will fail us. I assure you it will fail us. Think about what it is that you are aligning your life to achieve and ask this question. 
do I think I will die without that thing? Do I think that I can't exist without that thing? Do I think that I cannot be satisfied without that thing? If you can think of something, then your contentment is not fully in Jesus. I know as I prayed and as I thought about this passage, I found all sorts of small things that I was so quick to think would satisfy me. They won't. In fact, if I place my desire, my, my hope and satisfaction in any of those things, they'll just end up killing me instead. Paul can be in chains. Paul can be awaiting trial. Paul can be awaiting his execution. And he can still say that he's content in Jesus. Amen. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the result of contentment. The result of contentment. There are probably a lot of results of contentment, but four stood out to me as I thought and I read and I prayed this week, so I want to go through each one real quickly. One is a deeper satisfaction in the sovereignty of God. A deeper satisfaction in the sovereignty of God. Really is simply this, having joy in the fact that God is in control. Contentment is one of the ways that we express that truth. We truly believe that God has given us what he's meant to give us, and we can be content in that fact, and then we can continue to point to all the places we believe God will continue to come through. I know that all of you in different ways have suffered, and there are probably people here this morning who are suffering deeply and difficultly and complexly, and you're asking this question, why am I in this place? I don't know. I don't know the answer specifically. I do know this. God is not surprised by it. He's not thrown off balance. He's not put off course. He's not scrambling to try and make sure that you are okay. We believe in a God who does not make mistakes. We believe in a God who not only does not make mistakes, but he goes to extreme efforts to provide for and to care for and to love his people. When we practice contentment, we're acknowledging that truth. That powerful truth. The truth is this, that we believe in the God who has cast planets into their orbits, who holds molecules together, who has overseen the various and complex transitions of history, a God that is in control of everything and actually does care about you. Actually does. Not in a vague sense, not in a general sense, cares about you so much so that he was willing himself to die for you. Hear that. The creator of the universe, the one who is in control of everything, is also in control of your life. We can count on that. We can count on that more than we can count on gravity. We can be sure that God has already achieved victory in Christ and that he will right all injustices in the end. As Christians, we stand in a future hope. And we can be presently content. Amen? Secondly, one of the results of contentment is a more daring generosity. A more daring generosity. I think most of us understand what it means to be discontent in a desire to gain possessions. Some of us also understand that Content or discontentment can lead us not to just gain things, but to desperately try and keep them. It does not matter how much money you have. It will not keep you safe. 
it won't. It will not keep you safe. No amount of money, no amount of like great retirement programs, no amount of realty investments, nothing can truly keep you safe. I'm not saying be unwise with money. I'm not saying make bad choices. I'm saying remember what it is that keeps you safe. It's not money. One of the things that contentment does is it acknowledges that everything that you have, God has given to you. And you now can have a heart that is excited to daringly and sacrificially and generously give to others. Contentment should storm the gates of the self-made man. It should. And it should excite their hearts for generosity in ways that have reoriented and reordered their priorities. Not their own personal safety, but the advancement of God's kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. It's one of the results of contentment. Thirdly, a closer community. A closer community. When we believe in the sovereignty of God, when we give self-sacrificially, when we express generosity, we create a community that is closer than ever before. Listen to the way that Paul talks to the Philippians, a group of people who, by the way, he only spent a couple of weeks with. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of you, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We read this rich theological opening of a letter to a group of people that Paul spent a couple of weeks with, and we're reminded that they are unified in the name of Jesus. Paul is far away from them. He is in different circumstances than them. He has had a different calling than them. He has a different future than many of them in the immediate sense. However, he still calls them partners. What happened at the cross is not just reconciliation between us and God. Jesus didn't just make us right with God. Jesus began the work so that we may be made right with each other. Contentment in Jesus it leads us to a closer community because we have the same priorities and most importantly, we have the same Lord. And lastly, I believe contentment can lead to a stronger identification with Jesus himself. I think each of these follows from the next. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We give generously. We have a close community. And ultimately, as we live self-sacrificial lives, we do the very thing that Jesus told us to do. He says to his disciples on the road back to Jerusalem, pick up your cross and follow me. The cross being the implement, the tool of death. Jesus calls his disciples to die to themselves for the sake of him and for the sake of other people. Self-sacrificial generosity. Contentment that leads to these sorts of things enables us to identify well with Christ 
who has done the same thing for us ahead of time. Paul says this in the same letter in Philippians. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. As he's telling them about how they might have unity, how they might love each other well, how they might express their Christian values appropriately, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying to them, Paul is saying to us, our priorities must be different. We must find contentment in Jesus and we do so, we must live lives like Jesus lived. The Bible never says to you, go and be moral, do these great things, clench your fists. The Bible continually, over and over again, points to the example of Jesus and says, that's what you do. That is what you do. Amen? I really want us to ask this question. I've asked it a lot myself this week. I think back to Thanksgiving and Black Friday, and I asked myself, which ritual is my heart closer to? Is it a ritual in which I express contentment and thankfulness for what God has already done for me and the things he's provided for me? Is it one that acknowledges that my contentment, my satisfaction can only be found in Jesus? Or is it in the other one that says, if I just have that, I'll be happy? I want you to ask that question. I want each of you to ask that question. As we prepare for communion, as we prepare to feed on the very provision of Jesus, examine your hearts. I know as I do, I find things. I find things. And I want us to see there is a direct connection between how content we are in Jesus and how much we believe the truth of the gospel. Because if we truly believe the gospel, we are satisfied. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us this morning that you would continue to bless us and encourage us, that you would continue to teach us, that you would unify us as a body. I pray that you would show us places in our hearts where we are still finding or seeking to find contentment and other things. Show us places in our hearts where we've just cut ourselves off from the external world, assuming that we're strong enough to be satisfied in ourselves. Increase our joy and our satisfaction and our hope and our excitement for your son, Jesus. Pray all these things in his name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.